70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. My name is Yuri, and I've been listening to KBS World Radio's Japanese program since 2020. I've not been able to visit Korea for three years now due to the COVID 19 pandemic, and KBS World Radio has been a bridge between me and Korea during that time. What I like the most about it is that you can get the latest information that's not even available on the internet yet. I also enjoy the YouTube live streams that started last year as I can communicate with the hosts in real time. Congratulations on the evolution from shortwave radio all the way to YouTube. Happy 70th birthday, and I'll look forward to more fun shows down the road. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's the 8th of March, and welcome to our Wednesday edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Woo. President Yoon Sung Yeol is set to make a state visit to the United States in late April, the first such visit by a South Korean president in 12 years. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. 30 years after North Korea first declared that it was pulling out of the Nuclear Non Proliferation Treaty, we look back at the international community's denuclearization efforts of the regime for our in depth today. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we delve into a highly celebrated classic novel called The Poet by Lee Moon Yeol. Let's begin Korea 24. It's been announced that President Yoon Sung Yeol is set to make a state visit to the United States in late April. During the meeting held to celebrate 70 years of alliance between the two nations, various topics are expected to be covered, from North Korea to economic issues. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jang Woo. So while there have been visits by Korean presidents to the US in recent years, this will be the first state visit to the White House by a South Korean president in 12 years. So, what can we expect from this visit? Right, it's been a long time, and the White House announced Tuesday that President Yoon will make a state visit to the United States on April 26th. During the summit and dinner, the two leaders will highlight the importance and strength of the alliance, of course. South Korea's presidential office also confirmed this. And during the state visit, which marks the third meeting between Yoon and Biden, they will seek to enhance cooperation and combined defense posture, extended deterrence, cutting-edge technology, economic security, culture, and people-to-people exchanges, among other things. The top office is also reportedly in talks on a possible address to the U.S. Congress by President Yoon himself. 
The National Security Advisor Kim Sung-han is in Washington to fine-tune details of this visit. He touched on what would be prioritized in improving bilateral alliance. Kim Tasmo. Well, they said during the visit, the two sides will focus on ways to safeguard peace and stability on the peninsula in the face of evolving nuclear missile threats. By Pyongyang, and also to reaffirm America's steadfast extended deterrence commitment, and for the South Korean public to have confidence in Washington's security commitment, as proven by ongoing joint drills and U.S. asset deployments. Other key agenda items will include economic security cooperation centered around the establishment of stable supply chains, as well as closely communicating and taking necessary measures to minimize uncertainty or disadvantage faced by Korean firms in the process of implementing U.S. industrial policies such as the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. Speaking of the CHIPS Act, Trade Minister Andokun is visiting the U.S. for talks uh, on the policy amid growing concerns over its impact on South Korean chipmakers. And before departing for the States on Wednesday at Incheon International Airport, untold reporters, he plans to seek ways to mitigate concerns that the state subsidy portion of the act does not comply with com- global standards and may obstruct stable supply chains. During his three-day trip, An will meet with senior Biden administration officials to address uncertainties Korean firms face due to the subsidy requirements as well as a possible infringement on their management and technological rights. The Chips and Science Act taking effect last August calls for subsidies of $52.7 billion and 25% in tax incentives for foreign semiconductor manufacturers that set up factories in the United States. However, companies receiving subsidies are required to share excess profits with the federal government as well as submit data on their cash flows and profitability, which spark concerns over potential info leaks on key tech and management. Washington is also expected to announce guardrails that prohibit companies that are receiving subsidies from making facility investments in China's chip industry for a decade. OK, let's run through some of the other headlines of the day, starting with domestic politics. The results are out for the ruling People Power Party's election to pick a new chairman. And it is Representative Kim Gi-hyun. Well, it was held at the Kintex Exhibition Centre on Wednesday, uh, the national convention that was. The PPP announced that Kim was elected as the new chair, receiving some 244,000 or 52.9% of votes. He was elected only by a vote of party members who cast ballots through either mobile or voice-based automatic response systems. An Su came in second with 23.4%, followed by Chan Aram with 15%. Hwang Gyuan had slightly over 8.7%. Kim, a four-term lawmaker and former Ulsan mayor, will now lead the ruling bloc through next year's general elections. The new chair, widely considered President Yoon sung yeols favorite, is expected to help move Yoon's agenda forward. And President Yoon sung yeol showed up at Kintex for the event. He was celebrating with huge uppercuts and V ceremonies and it's the first time in seven years that the president attended a national convention of the ruling party since former President Park Geun-hye did so back in 2016. Turning to the situation in the quake-ravaged Turkey now, South Korea is set to dispatch a third emergency relief team to assist with the establishment of a temporary residential complex for displaced victims. At a session of a joint government civilian overseas relief council on Wednesday, Foreign Minister Park Jin expressed hope the new team's mission to provide a sustainable base will give the displays the courage to carry on. The minister said the successful linkage of humanitarian aid and development in a disaster-struck region was made possible thanks to the government's resolve to become a global leader as well as active cooperation from civic groups and the public. 
He also took note of various relief efforts from the private sector, as government-civilian partnership will help double the impact of South Korea's support and increase its sustainability. The third South Korean team will take on a new objective from the two previous relief teams, which participated in search for survivors and deliveries of relief items. Shifting to sport, the manager of South Korea's team for the 2023 World Baseball Classic, Yi Gang-chul, has vowed to lead the squad to the semifinals in Miami, Florida. Can you tell us more? Well, expectations are not very high for this particular WBC squad, according to many uh, experts, analysts, or skeptics. But of course, uh, you can get pleasant surprises when they're seen as the underdogs and mm. not the reigning favorites. He made the remark in a press conference on Wednesday, a day ahead of Team Korea's game against Australia in the Pool B opener in Tokyo. He praised the players' preparations and said the die has been cast and the goal is to make it to Miami. South Korea has beat Australia eight straight times before, but he said that's the last thing on his mind as Team Korea has not fared well in international competitions in the past two years. He vowed to do his best and South Korea is in Pool B with Japan, Australia, China and the Czech Republic Pool B is one of the four pools and game scheduled between Thursday and next Monday in Tokyo. South Korea's second game will be against Japan on Friday, and that's always exciting to watch. The top two teams from each pool advance to the single elimination bracket, which starts next Wednesday. Tokyo will host two of the quarterfinals. The remaining two quarterfinals, the semifinals and the final will be held in Miami. And finally, new data finds that the average income of working women was only 65% of earnings by men last year, proof that the gender pay gap is still evident in a South Korean society today. And this data comes on the day of International Women's Day today. So can you tell us more? Right. According to a report by the Labor Research Institute within the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, Working women earned a monthly average of 2.2 million won, or around 1,664 U.S. dollars in 2022. That's 64.9% of the average for men. More than 29% of all female workers were low-paid, earning less than 1.66 million won per month. Of women in their 70s or older, 94% were in this low-wage bracket. The designation applied to 81% of wage-earning teens. The report also found that the number of Continuous years of service for women reach 4.81 years on average, 2.11 years shorter than men. Employment instability among women is higher given that the percentage of women who are non-regular workers or work only part-time is much higher than that of men. Another noteworthy data, 38% of female employees worked in small businesses with fewer than 10 people. The report stressed the need to swiftly lessen gender gaps in employment and wages, and as the current policy on labor essentially leaves it up to businesses to do what they can to reduce workplace gender disparities, on their own volition, something must be done. One solution would be introducing a gender labor disclosure system requiring companies to disclose the ratio of men to women in key categories, including recruitment, work, and retirement. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. This week marks 30 years since North Korea announced that it will pull out of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Since then, efforts have been made to denuclearize the reclusive state through various means, like economic sanctions and diplomatic talks. 
but to no avail. So far, the regime has carried out six nuclear tests and developed ballistic missiles that can reach the U.S. mainland. And today, the North Korea、uh, is showing no signs of giving up its nuclear weapons. To get an assessment of the denuclearization efforts over the past three decades and what lies ahead with regard to the peace process on the Korean Peninsula, we have two guests joining us today. First, in the studio, we have with us Dr. Che Gang, president of the Asa Institute for Policy Studies. Dr. Che, hello, and thank you for coming today. Oh, thanks for having me here. And we're also joined via video. Uh, Evans Revere, non resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution's Centre for East Asia Policy Studies. Mr. Revere, hello, and thank you for joining us too. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So it was March 1993 that North Korea announced its intention to withdraw from the Nuclear Non Proliferation Treaty. While the United States and North Korea signed the Geneva Agreed Framework in 1994, the year later, Pyongyang promising to freeze and eventually dismantling its nuclear weapons program, that fell apart in 2002 with revelations that the North had pursued a clandestine uranium enrichment program that led to the North eventually declaring its withdrawal from the NPT finally in 2003. Since then, North Korea's nuclear program has grown at an alarming pace despite efforts by South Korea, the United States, and the international community. Dr. Chair, let me start with you. How do you assess the efforts to denuclearize North Korea over the past three decades? Let me start with the assumption we had at the beginning of the first nuclear crisis. If I remember correctly, we assumed actually North Korean nuclear weapon is a kind of bargaining chip. So if we provide what North Korea wants, they, can, they would give up. The nuclear weapons. We actually underestimate their determination to develop and keep the nuclear weapons. So, if we look at the Geneva Agreed Framework, there's economic incentives and the establishment of diplomatic relations, kinds of things. Then, actually, 2005, we had the same kinds of agreement again, also, so provide another economic、uh, incentive packages. And then, nowadays, North Korea is demanding the security guarantee. From the United States. I assume that security guarantee means the termination of our OK US alliance. So, from the beginning, we started with a wrong assumption,、mm. a wrong belief. So, 30 years actually has proved us that the actual, as our assumptions and approaches were wrong. So, actually, we are now at the mode of pressure rather than incentive. So, actually, all the previous approaches are based upon the, providing the incentives to North Korea. So, to, to,、uh, to ask North Korea or make the North Korea to give up the nuclear weapon. But actually, I don't know what, what kinds of、uh, alternative approach we should have taken. Actually, I think maybe we have to thought about real,、uh, actually, the pressure, cap- pressure campaign on North Korea, where North Korea can feel the pain and accountable for the, actually, the misdemeanor. Behavior of North Korea. I think maybe we have not done enough on the, the pressure side.、Hmm. Rather, we like to have all the stabilized situation, no further going down the road on the development of nuclear weapons. So, actually, we have come to the, the realization North Korea's real intent is to be recognized as a nuclear power state rather than giving up the nuclear weapons through the diplomatic negotiations. 
So you're saying through all these years, agreed framework, six-party talk, sunshine policy, everything, perhaps it's the start where everything went wrong initially. Actually, this assumptions assumptions was was incorrect because hmm. actually we did not actually understand correctly the North Korea real intent from the beginning. Actually, North Korea nuclear program goes back to the mid nineteen fifties. Actually, Kim Il Sung, the founder of North Korean regime, actually strongly emphasized the development of nuclear weapons. He was so much feared during the Korean War, maybe the possibility of U.S. nuclear attack, and then he firmly believed that. The nuclear weapon is the the most reliable tool to to provide the regime security for North Korean regime, actually Kim you know, Kim family regime. Mr. Revere, what about yourself? What have you made of the efforts to denuclearize North Korea over the past three decades? And in hindsight, what do you think uh, we could have done differently? Well. Uh... My, my colleague has has gone through a lot of history, and I, I agree with him in, in uh, terms of where he comes out in his assessment of, of that history. Uh, I would only add that if you look back over the history of what we tried, uh, conservative and liberal administrations in both of our countries, Republican and Democratic administrations in Washington, tried everything to convince North Korea not to go down this path. They tried removing sanctions. They tried piling more sanctions on. They tried creating a path to normalization of relations uh, with Pyongyang. They tried isolating it. They tried energy assistance, food aid, technical assistance, et cetera. All of the things uh, that Dr. Che mentioned and much more. I was part of this process. One of my jobs was creating these incentive packages Mm -hmm. to see if we could get a response from North Korea. Nothing worked. Uh, On reflection, and I've been doing a lot of reflection about this, we failed because there was no way we were ever going to succeed. From the beginning, and this is hindsight, obviously, North Korea was determined to develop, test, and deploy nuclear weapons because it saw these weapons as its salvation and as the best way to ensure the survival uh, of the regime. And North Korea was prepared to make remarkable sacrifices and nothing we could have done short of military action or toppling the regime was going to stop Pyongyang from reaching that goal. So here we are. Uh, could we have done something differently? Well, it's, it's easy in hindsight to, to tweak this policy or that approach, mm-hmm. et cetera. The, the one thing that we were never able to do with the North Korean regime was to give it a stark choice between nuclear weapons and survival. We were never able to convince the North Korean regime that its continued development of nuclear weapons and missiles would lead to the collapse of the regime. Had we been able to do that, we would have, I think, been able to convince the North Korean regime that now is the time to consider denuclearization, because if we don't, we are on the road to collapse. But no U.S. or ROK administration was prepared to adopt that approach because they considered it uh, risky. And now, unfortunately, it's too late. So from the start, uh, perhaps uh, our assumptions were wrong. You're both saying, it seems, that uh, North Korea were never interested in incentives, uh, that their primary concern was about developing their nuclear program, and very little was going to change that. Very, uh, The carrot to the stick wasn't going to change that, essentially, we're saying. So while that's the past, let's look to the current situation now then. Dr. Chair. Yes. What options do we have now? Is there something that we can try now to declare nuclearize North Korea? Is it 
too late to try and switch that thinking? Actually, there's Mr. Revere mentioned in our conversation about a year ago, he mentioned about the, uh, the massive pressure campaign. Com- so I add another adjective, comprehensive massive pressure campaign. Actually, that leads North Korea to make a clear choice, denuclearization or regime collapse. But we have not done enough to go down that path. So, for example, we did not secure enough uh, cooperation from China and Russia in enforcing the sanctions vis-a-vis North Korea. It is reported China and Russia are helping North Korea to gather the materials, technologies, and financial resources to manufacture nuclear weapons because the primary concern of China and Russia is the continuation of the current North Korean regime. Regime survival is much more important for them, especially in the context of U.S.-China strategic rivalry in Asia and also the U.S.-Russia actually competition or the uh, Russia's expansionist invasion of Ukraine. So we could not get enough. But actually, both countries, I mean the Russia and China, were really concerned about U.S. sanctions vis-a-vis their own firms. Which, is, which are deeply involved in transaction with North Korean company and individuals who are, which are involved in this manufacturing nuclear weapons. Mm. But actually, we have started that kinds of sanctions maybe three or maybe three or four years ago, not enough, too late. But actually, we are now on the road to, to gear up our pressure campaign vis-a-vis North Korea. For example, we are now actually resuming the joint military exercise, again, at the regular level. And now we have seen more strategic assets of the United States operating in and around the Korean Peninsula. And also, uh, the other, actually, with, I like to highlight the kinds of human rights issue again. That actually delegitimized the Kim Jong-un regime because actually it's clear violation of all the human rights you can imagine North Korea is ranked 167th country in the world in terms of democratic index. That's the lowest, actually, at the bottom of that list. So actually, we have to think about diplomatic pressure, economic pressure, and military pressure. And also, we have to secure our the moral high ground vis-a-vis North Korea by raising this human rights issue as well. But the, sec- the other is one is how long and how widely we can ensure the international cooperation and coalition in enforcing this comprehensive mass pressure campaign vis-a-vis North Korea. That's another issue. That's why we tend to focus on there is a role China and Russia can play. But actually, we have to think about China and Russia are also responsible for this failure of all this process. So we're saying we need more pressure, perhaps better late than never now, to continue. And then we also need to think long-term of, of that pressure of course, as well actually, to keep it going. My, my dear friend, uh, Mr. Revere, always actually, we'd like to see the peaceful resolution of the, the nuclear issue through the diplomatic dialogue. But actually, to make that happen, we need to think about the pressure campaign as a precondition for the, the next step. Mr. Revere, what options do you think uh, we have now in trying to uh, tackle this uh, issue with North Korea about their nuclear weapons program? Well, uh, I have not completely given up hope that we might be able to pursue denuclearization, but I would completely agree with uh, my friend Dr. Che uh, that the only way to get to the point where North Korea is willing to consider denuclearization is through by that is through that process of applying massive, overwhelming 
I call it regime-shaking pressure. Mm. Uh, if we do that, uh, there is some possibility that the North Koreans might finally uh, go down a different path. But thus far, uh, our two governments have, have always stopped short of applying that level of pressure. And I frankly don't see China and Russia and a number of other countries ever agreeing to the sort of comprehensive, massive, overwhelming pressure uh, that Dr. Shea and I have in mind. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't apply it. Uh, there are many, many, many things that we can still do to put pressure on the North Korean regime. Uh, but the, the goal of pressure now, I think, uh, now that North Korea is a de facto nuclear power, uh, is to try to manage North Korea and manage its ambitions uh, and remind North Korea that your status as a nuclear power means that you have sentenced your country and your people to a lifetime of privation, of poverty, isolation, and suffering. And that is certainly the best tool we have now for managing the North Korean nuclear threat. And it may also, as Dr. Che and I have both suggested, be the one tool left uh, that could bring them back to a serious denuclearization dialogue. I'd like to ask you both this as well, starting with you, uh, Mr. Revere. You mentioned earlier that the United States and the international community were hesitant to apply this sort of pressure because they viewed it as risky. Doesn't that risk still exist? Uh, isn't there a risk that North Korea could escalate the situation as well? Uh, it is risky. There is that risk that you just mentioned. However, North Korea's goal is not national suicide. North Korea's goal is the preservation of their system, the preservation of their regime. And actually, this massive, overwhelming pressure strategy plays to that, that point. Uh, the goal of North Korea is to have nuclear weapons, and this is in their minds, and to use those nuclear weapons to preserve the regime. If you can convince the regime that having those nuclear weapons is undermining the regime, and that's where the pressure comes in, then you have a chance of denuclearizing North Korea. This is risky. Uh, you risk the possibility of uh, precipitate collapse of the North Korean regime. Uh, that's been a worry over the years. You risk the possibility that North Korea might lash out. Uh, but I have my doubts about that because, once again, the goal is not national suicide in Pyongyang. This is not al-Qaeda that we're dealing with here. The goal of North Korea is to continue to the regime and if we can attack that uh, thinking in North Korea, we have some possibility not only of managing this issue, but of getting back to uh, a serious dialogue about getting rid of those nuclear weapons in the North. Dr. Chair. Actually, I agree with Mr. Revere. Actually, we have not done enough to make North Korea to make a choice, either denuclearization or regime survival. So actually, even we actually were really concerned of the collateral damage we can suffer by raising the tensions or by posing the threat upon North Korea. So we were actually, I, I was a little disappointed the previous government or even uh, conservative government was very hesitant to put enough pressure. Of course, you cannot tell exactly how much pressure is good enough to make, make North Korea to make a clear choice. But anyhow, we have not done enough. 
For example, where there is a UN sanction were introduced, there are always about the oh, ineffectiveness of sanctions vis-a-vis North Korea. But we have not done enough. But there are other cases. The, the sanction worked. That was the Iranian case. Actually, but Iranian case lasted longer and also many countries enforced uh, in compliance where the UN sanction and also the unilateral sanction vis-a-vis North Korea. The second part, we have not done enough on the, the military side. Actually, my observation of North Korean uh, history, actually, they were really concerned about military threat coming. Actually, military countermeasures coming from the U.S. and ROK. Mm. We have not done enough. Whenever we have shown our strategic assets, military exercise, they were really concerned. So we have to think about how we are going to use our military asset uh, to change mm. North Korea's strategic calculus. Very briefly, Dr. Chair, do you think either the United States or South Korea have the stomach to carry out this sort of uh, maximum pressure tactic on North Korea? At the moment, I think so, because actually we have, actually, the, from March 12 to, I think, exactly the, the date, about the 10 days we are going to have joint military exercise that we have not seen for the past five years, and also that involves not only the conventional forces, but also U.S. strategic assets. Those are the clear signs of the U.S. commitment to the defense of South Korea and also very strong signal toward North Korea about U.S. deterrent posture. Hmm. And also, unlike previous cases, United States revealed their strategic submarine, actually nuclear submarine, came to Busan and also actually hmm. I think maybe last November they showed Ohio class, hmm. which carries the nuclear warhead, nuclear missile. Sure. And, and Guam. So those are the signs that actually U.S. is determined to prevent North Korea from escalating or ready to respond to North Korea's provocation in any level. And also, actually, last uh, year, actually, United States released the Nuclear Posture Review. Actually, and also the Secretary mm. Austin, when he came to Seoul, he reconfirmed that if North Korea used nuclear weapon, that's the end of the regime. That's a clear sign. But that word must be backed up by more concrete actions and visible countermeasures. Mr. Revere, do you agree that the U.S. has the stomach at the moment to carry out that sort of maximum pressure very briefly? Uh, I think uh, there is a view in Washington uh, that more needs to be done and more is being done. Uh, Dr. Che went down an excellent list of what what we are doing. There's actually a lot more happening than that. Uh, I think the uh, administration, despite what's going on in Ukraine, despite the difficulties with China, is moving in the direction of, uh, of demonstrating in a very concrete way uh, U.S. determination to support the ROK and deal with uh, this rising threat from North Korea. And Dr. Chair, what do you make of the recent debate over the nuclear armament of South Korea and possibly even Japan in facing the growing nuclear threat posed by North Korea? Of course, there are two options we can think of. There's one is... South Korea or Japan's indigenous nuclear weapons. I am against that. But actually, I always propose a reintroduction of tactical nuclear weapons. That's not a violation of this, the MPT regime, because still the United States will maintain its control of the, the tactical nuclear weapons. But on the other hand, uh, the U.S. officials always, oh, we don't have a good enough number of tactical nuclear weapons, but still United States, 130 B-61, the, 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 the L-drop bomb. So it is possible for the United States to deploy, but there is a counter-argument against that, but actually the most reasonable 
the feasible way to lead us to the denuclearization of North Korea is actually the reintroduction of tactical nuclear weapons. So I call it nuclearization for denuclearization. Mm. But actually, independent indigenous nuclear weapon program is clearly the violation of MPT regime and also leads to the proliferation. So there are many problems internally and externally. South Korean economy will be damaged and also ROK US alliance. I don't know whether they can survive that or not. Of course, some people argue, for example, the French case or Israeli case, acquisition of nuclear weapons that did mm. not lead to the collapse of the, the, the alliance. But there could be some weakening U.S. commitment to the defense of South Korea. So no indigenous nuclear weapons, uh, but U.S. tactical weapons yes. bringing those in. Mr. Revere, what do you make of that suggestion? I agree completely with the cautions that Dr. Che has just laid out about uh, the uh, about South Korea or Japan, for that matter, going nuclear. I, I don't think that's the solution to this. Uh, regarding uh, the redeployment of tactical nuclear weapons, I think that's pretty unlikely. Uh, there are ways to demonstrate yes. our tactical and strategic capabilities uh, in very interesting and creative ways that will be seen by the North Koreans. You don't need to physically have those weapons on the soil of the Republic of Korea. That's only one point we disagree. Right, because if it's <laughs> going to be maximum pressure, as you both have said, uh, doesn't we need, don't we need to at least show that in that way then, Mr. Revere? Well, the, the placement of tactical nuclear weapons on South Korean soil would automatically make the location of those uh, weapons a target uh, of North Korea. I don't know that we want to go down that path. You would also have some political issues in South Korea, but uh, there are ways that are happening right now where South Korea, where North Korea is being reminded of what we have and how it can be used on almost a daily basis these days, and I'm encouraged by that. Well, we are out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. It is, of course, an alarming situation with North Korea, but today was a very interesting discussion. We'll be speaking with Dr. Chegan, president of the Asan Institute for Policy Studies, and Evans Revere, non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution's Centre for East Asia Policy Studies. Thank you both for your time today and for your considered thoughts. Thank you. You're welcome. Great to be with you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 31.44 points, or 1.28% on Wednesday, to close the day at 2,431.91. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 1.81 points, or 0.22%, to close at 813.95. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 22-1 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,321.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segments where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online. And for that, we have Walter Lee joining us in the studio. Walter, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jang Ho. It's always good to see you. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? Okay, so first we'll delve into a giant Ferris wheel that will be built along the Han River. And then we'll move on to some shocking news about what Yangpyeon police found near the home of a man facing animal protection law violation charges. And finally, the new head coach for South Korean national men's football team has arrived here in South Korea. 
Okay, let's start with that first story. Then, can you tell us more? Yeah. So, as part efforts、uh, to turn Seoul into a more attractive global city, the city government announced that a giant fast rail named Seoul Ring will be built in Mapo District, Sangam neighborhood. Now, Seoul Ring is going to be a giant Ferris wheel equipped with large cabins for passengers, with its modern ring-shaped design. Yes, this is a signature project by Seoul Mayor Ozeun. It's a、uh, Being compared to the London Eye or the Singapore Flyer, so how big exactly will this giant Ferris wheel be? Well, bigger than those two, because Seoul officials said it will be the world's second largest wheel after Ain Dubai, the world's tallest and largest observation wheel, and the largest Ferris wheel without spokes. It will have a diameter of 180 meters. Now, Seoul Ring will be located at an eco-themed park. And will offer a bird's eye view of the capital city. Now, the 400 billion won or 304 million US dollar project is set to break ground in June 2025, with the goal of completion by December 2027. It will accommodate 1,747 people per hour and up to 11,792 people per day, bringing an average of 3.5 million tourists each year. Okay, so it's going to be quite an ambitious project that's going to change this whole skyline, and it's all part of、uh, Mayor Oh's so-called、uh, Great Sunset project, right? Which was、uh, announced last last year. Yeah, that's correct. So the mayor mentioned Seoul Ring will when he announced the Great Sunset project in August of last year. Under the project, several attractions include on-water stages for art performances and bridges for pedestrians to lure visitors to the sunset area along the Han River. Okay, so it seems then that's all coming soon to the capital. Let's、uh, move on now to our next story, and we'd like to warn our listeners now that it is about a rather horrific case of animal cruelty. The details of which are quite upsetting. So, Walter, what can you tell us? Yes, you're right. Very disturbing news. Police in Yangpyeon, Gyeonggi Province, have found over 1,000 dogs, dead dogs, near the home of a man. In his 60s, who was under criminal investigation for allegedly violating animal protection laws. Now, police originally thought there were three to four hundred carcasses, but discovered some at one thousand two hundred after three days of investigation. Yes, it is just an unfathomable number. So. What happened exactly? What is the man being investigated for exactly? Okay, so the man is accused of bringing abandoned dogs to his home and starving them to death for the past two to three years. The incident was brought to brought to the light last Saturday after a nearby resident found their lost dog at the man's residence and reported it to the police. Some residents said that they saw dog carcasses and noticed a rotting smell. His yard and water tank were found to be full of bones and carcasses. When you say he brought abandoned dogs to his home, can you explain a bit more? What was,、uh, what has the man said to the police? Okay, so he told police that people had asked him to dispose of the dogs they were raising, adding that he received ten thousand won for each dog. That's around seven dollars. However, animal protection agents,、uh, organisation, sorry, officials say that he has also confessed to bringing the dogs from breeding centres. Yes,、yeah, so he brought them home and then just locked them up essentially to starve and die, and then、uh, didn't even bother to remove their carcasses with their bodies piling up on the floor, over a thousand, as we said.、Mm-hmm. It is a shocking story,、uh, but there are already concerns over the fact that the maximum sentence he could receive for violating animal protection laws is three years in jail or a fine of thirty million won, which is about twenty-two thousand U.S. dollars.、Uh, people are saying that the sentences are not strong enough. 
perhaps there could be other charges levied against him as well. But uh, this case could lead to more calls for reforms when it comes to animal rights and animal cruelty as well. Okay, we end the segment on a lighter note now, as the head coach for the Korean men's national football team has now arrived in Korea. Yes, you're correct. So Jurgen Klinsmann arrived at Incheon International Airport early this morning. Now the German football legend is taking over from Paolo Bento, who led the Taeguk Warriors to the round of 16 at last year's FIFA World Cup to cap off his four-year tenure. Now Klinsmann is signed through the next FIFA World Cup in 2026. And what did the German coach have to say upon his arrival at Incheon Airport? Now, after stating that he was very proud and privileged to have the opportunity to come to Korea and work for the national team, Klinsmann said the team did well during last year's FIFA World Cup and hopes to bring even more success. He added that his goal is to win the Asian Cup next year, adding that the Korean team proved in Qatar that it can beat those big nations. Yes, that's quite an ambitious goal, as the last time the country won the Cup was in 1960. But it's one that uh, will have Korean fans excited, I feel. Mm. Did he talk about his reason for choosing the uh, Tegut Warriors to coach? Well, Klinsman cited that his history has something to do with the reason why he chose Korea's national team. He played at the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul and returned to the country in 2002 to work as a commentator during the World Cup. He then visited South Korea again in 2017 to watch his goalkeeper son, Jonathan, play for the United States at the FIFA Under-20 World Cup. And last year, the German coach worked, the German coach worked with Cha Duri, the former South Korean international and son of Korean football icon Cha Bong-gun on FIFA's technical study group. Okay, so what's coming up next for the new head coach? Okay, so he is scheduled to hold a press conference tomorrow at 2pm at the National Football Centre in Paju. The coach has a busy couple of weeks ahead of him as his debut match will be a friendly against Colombia on March 24th in Ulsan. He also has another friendly match against Uruguay coming up on March 28th in Seoul. Yes, and the squad for those matches will be announced next Monday as well. That's all we have time for on today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Walter, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Continue on now to Korea Book Club. This is our weekly segment where we dive into the world of Korean literature, usually through works translated into the English language. We have joining us on the line now our literary critic Barry Welsh. Barry, hello. It's uh, good to talk to you. Yes, good evening. Yes, thank you for connecting with us, even though I understand that you are feeling a bit poorly today, which is uh, why you weren't able to come in today, but we hope you feel better soon. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, so what book are you introducing to our listeners today? I believe it is a work that was originally published more than three decades ago now. Yes, that's right. So tonight we're reviewing a novel called The Poet. The Korean title is Sheen, and it's by Lee Moon Yeol. It was translated by Brother Anthony and Chung Chong Hwa. It was originally published, like you said, in 1991, with the English translation following in 1995. And of course, Lee Moon Yeol is one of Korea's most uh, celebrated and highly regarded writers. He was born in 1948. Uh, debuted in 1979, and since then he's published more than 30 works. He's sold millions of books. 
uh, been translated into dozens of languages and won numerous uh, literary awards, including the Korean Literature Award in 1983 and the Home Arts Prize in 1999. And he is also responsible for many classic works, including Our Twisted Hero, which we reviewed not too long ago, uh, and Son of Man, among many more. Uh, he's now in his 70s and he hasn't published anything since 2016 and it seems like he's uh, essentially re- retired, I think. Uh, today's novel is one of his most uh, celebrated books and one that, uh, you know, so long after it was first published, continues to spark debate uh, and captivate casual readers and, and academics alike. Uh, the Poet is a historical novel. Uh, it tells the life story or, or parts of the life uh, story of a near-legendary uh, Korean poet called Kim Pyongyon, or as he was more commonly known, Kim Sagat. Uh, and he was Kim was born uh, in the 19th century, and he was born into the powerful Kim dynasty. So Kim is one of the, the you know the, the powerful family names in Korea. But due to crimes that were committed by his grandfather, which we'll talk about a bit more in a minute or two, I'm sure, mm. uh, his family were stripped of their status, their, their sort of high and noble status, and he became a vagabond uh, poet traveling the country. Uh, and it's a fascinating story. It's a compelling story. Uh, and it's one that I'm sure lots of readers would still appreciate today. Right. So this story is by a celebrated author about a celebrated poet. Right. Uh-huh. So just to give a bit more background to this poet, uh, Kim Sagat, or Sagat is actually how you say it in Korean, uh, right. was born at the beginning of the 19th century in 1807. Uh, this is the late period of the Joseon dynasty in Korea. It was a time when Korean society was still deeply hierarchical. Uh, Kim was born into a powerful wing of the Kim clan, as he said, known as the Kims of Changdong. Uh, as a son of this powerful clan, Kim would be raised to assume a role as a scholar gentleman and inherit his father's position as an influential administrator of their local region. Yet, This did not come to pass, and Kim spent his life in poverty, travelling the country as a vagabond, as you said. You've hinted at it already, but what caused this uh, dramatic change in Kim's fortunes? Right, yes. So, uh, you know, his place in society, it seemed set upon his birth. You know, he would receive this uh, appropriate schooling for someone of his birth rank, and he would take this... Uh, sort of honourable and prestigious position in society. But in 1811, so just a few years after he was born, uh, his his entire family line, his sort of wing of the family, is cast uh, down. They're sort of cast out of favour. And this is because his grandfather, Kim Ik-sun, who who was an official and administrator of a town in the Pyongyang uh, province, uh, he, he was the uh, administrator there when the region was taken over by bandits who were sort of fighting against the government. Uh, and as the official of the region, a sort of a notable official, he was taken prisoner. Uh, and to, but to help protect the, the local people, uh, he supported the bandits and was apparently sympathetic to their, you know, their anti-government aims. And so when the government army arrived and sort of put down this rebellion, defeated this rabble of, of bandits, uh, Kim was seen as a collaborator and he was executed for, for, for helping the bandits, even though it's arguable maybe he was doing the, the best thing for the people. But the law of the time decreed that Kim... Uh, that Kim Ixin's descendants, uh, you know, his family members, his, his sons, should be stripped of their position in society and their ancestral lands uh, confiscated. And that's what, that's what happened. OK, so how is this portrayed in the story then? Kim was uh, 
only a child when these events were unfolding. So how did he become, should we say, aware of them? And how did his family react in this story? Right, so the opening section of the novel is very gripping. It, and so in this you know, a brilliantly, intensely realised first section of the book, we see through you know, the young, the four-year-old four uh, Kim Jong-un's eyes as his father uh, in the middle of the night sends the, the young and uncomprehending Kim and his slightly older brother away with a servant uh, you know, to live in a distant part of the country uh, in case they're perhaps uh, murdered or they, they, they suffer in some way in, in, in retribution for their grandfather's actions. So they flee their home uh, you know, in the black of night to escape government troops who might be searching for, for them. Uh, and from there, Kim, he lives as a commoner, uh, sort of greatly reduced status, uh, but he is reunited with his father and mother several years later, but this doesn't really improve his situation. Their lives are difficult and impoverished, uh, and they're sort of repeatedly turned away wherever they go because people don't want to be associated with the descendants of a, of a traitor. They have this sort of stigma on them. And his father dies you know, while he's still a relatively young man due to these sort of experiences, the difficult life they're living. His brother sort of turns to drink and gambling, uh, you know, as a, as a family sort of scraping a living, doing some sort of farming and, and, and various other kind of things. Uh, and his, it's only his mother who sort of retains some kind of hope that their position in society, their station in society might be reinstated. And her hope for this is that uh, she'll have Kim pass the uh, administrator exam, right? So these exams which could change the, the your role in, in society. Mm. Uh, and so Kim, he judges studies for it but he doesn't end up taking the exam and uh, you know these experiences and this sort of unique situation that he's in may eventually lead to this uh, you know, really radical uh, decision really to you know abandon any attempt to, to live a regular life and this sets him out on his, his journey as a traveling poet. Okay so he sets out on the road what is his life then like as a traveling poet and how do his life experiences shape perhaps the poetry he became so famous for. Right, yeah, so, you know, it, it's really interesting, you know, the way this is depicted in the book, right? So he realises that despite this education, he's got the education of a gentleman, of a noble, uh, but he's ne even, even if he passes this exam, he's never going to be able to progress because of this sort of stigma that's on his family name. He'll never rise in society. He can't restore his family. And so, you know, he, he makes what, you know, seems like an awful decision. He turns his back on everything, including he has a wife and a young child at this point. Uh, and he sets out on the road with a sense of shame uh, and guilt hanging over him. Uh, and this is when he decides to wear this this uh, hat. This uh, it's like a uh, you know a wide bamboo hat that gives him his name, Kim Sagat. So sometimes he's called the rain hat poet because it was, you know uh, farmers would wear it to keep the rain off or to keep the sun sun uh, off their faces. Mm. And he wore it to hide his face from the sun. He says to sort of symbolise his shame for his grandfather's trans transgressions for this, uh, this crime that he didn't himself commit. And so he wanders the country uh, and as he does so, his, you know, his poetry goes through these different stages. At first, you know, he's seen as an educated person. He does have the schooling. And so he entertains, you know, the nobles and the aristocrats with the classical uh, poetry that was popular at the time. 
But he realizes that these people are are hypocrites. These are the these are the people who are responsible for repressing the workers and the commoners and the masses. So then he moves among those people, the poor and the workers, and he writes uh, poetry for them about their life. And that poetry is sort of more ribald and coarse. But he becomes beloved among the people for these poems. But then he he realizes again that this poetry isn't changing anything. He's not challenging the status quo or fighting corruption. And so he bought, he joins. Uh, like a bandit group who are, you know, they're trying to fight against the government and he turns his poetry to writing poems to try and inspire people to rise up against the the injustice Mm. that they live under. And then finally his poetry sort of turns to what it means to just be, to be human at all, uh, human, you know, at all as he kind of declines into his old age. And one of the the strengths of the book, or at least one of the strengths that I thought was how that sort of journey is realised, how these stages are just Described and the reasons behind them, like why he goes through that evolution. It's very captivating. There's a real sense of this mind progressing through stages, reacting to the world around him. And I think Emmanuel does a really good job of like illuminating, uh, you know, a poet's mind and then also like shining a light on aspects of the period and, and social conventions of the time. And briefly, Barry, this novel is generally regarded as a classic. Uh, it tells the story of this uh, 19th century poet Kim Satkat. It was published over three decades ago. So does it still speak to modern readers, though? Does it have anything to say to the modern world or contemporary society? Right, yeah, I think it does. Uh, you know, it, it's about power and what controls us and how we react to that power. You know, we all exist within structures. We behave in certain ways, and sometimes we're not even sure why. And Kim Satkat's story shows that we can bring these structures into focus, we can become aware through poetry or other means or ways of seeing things that are, the, the things that are guiding us or repressing us. Some of these things might be unconscious. Ken might have remained blind to the, the suffering of others, of the privilege of the upper classes, if he hadn't been forcibly removed, uh, unexpectedly removed from among them. And his journey shows how I think we can become aware of power structures that are around us, as well as many other things. You know, it's a rich and thought-provoking book, and I think uh, it, you know it deserves to be read outside of the academic world where it's uh, often uh, confined. Well, that's quite the endorsement. Once again, it's called "The Poet" by Imunyal, and the full translation of the text is available on Brother Anthony's website. We will provide links on our Career Twenty Four social media pages, such as Twitter and Instagram. So do check that out as well. That's all for Career Book Club this week, Barry. As always, thank you for your thoughtful review. Uh, we always appreciate ta- appreciate it. Take care, and uh, we'll see you next time. Okay, take care. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea 24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea 24. It's time for our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. 
And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us in the studio. Richard, hello. It's uh, good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay, what's the first story that you have for us today? First, we have an interesting story about a South Korean sculptor who decided to switch careers and become a surgeon. Jungmin Ho's article in the lifestyle section of the Korea Times goes into more detail about Shim Hyun Jung, who graduated from Seoul National University College of Fine Arts and then decided to pursue her new dream. So from becoming a sculptor to becoming a surgeon. Yes. That is... A career jump that doesn't happen very often, I would think. (laughs) Why did she make this a big change? Well, Shim said that her brother's intellectual disability was the reason why she took an interest in something other than fine arts. Right. She was curious about why her brother and people like him think and act differently. So she took a psychology class. This then led her to become more interested in the subject. But Shim felt that she was limited as she didn't have a medical degree. So in 2017, she was admitted to medical school. Now she is receiving postgraduate training for aspiring surgeons. Wow, well, it couldn't have been easy uh, to make this decision, especially after dedicating so much of her time to art, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't think I could make the switch myself. It's very, (laughs) very big change. Me (laughs) neither. But the article mentions that Shim's experience as an art student has been helpful. For both sculpting and surgery, a steady hand and a clear sense of judgment are needed. Mm. One big difference that Shim mentions is that with surgery... She is not able to start again if something goes wrong. Hmm. So there is a lot more pressure. Well, it is interesting, actually, because surgeons do have a lot of exercises to improve their finger dexterity, such as uh, picking up hobbies such as knitting or Mm. even uh, magic, close-up magic or things like that (laughs) to improve their their finger dexterity. So I'm sure that would be useful on the technical side of surgery. But, of course, being a surgeon is more than just being good with your hands. It is about the medical knowledge, which I don't think I could tackle (laughs) at a later stage in life. Okay, certainly a very interesting character. To find out more, check out tomorrow's Career Times. Uh, Let's move on to our next article. What do you have for us? Next, we have a story about a K-pop group making history overseas. This is becoming more common as K-pop has exploded in popularity over the past several years. Indeed. This time, Hong Yu's article in the entertainment section of the Korea Herald explains that Esper will become the first K-pop group to perform at Outside Land's Music and Arts Festival in America. Okay, so can you tell us more about this festival? Sure. This festival is huge, as more than 220,000 attend each year. This year, it will be held from August 11th to 13th at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. At the festival, there are usually around 90 different performances on six different stages. It also has diverse booths with food from different regions of America. Renowned artists such as Elton John, Billie Eilish, The Weeknd and Janet Jackson have performed in the past. And this year, Kendrick Lamar, Odessa and Lana Del Rey will feature. It just shows how far Esper has come. The group only debuted three years ago and is already performing on the same stage as some of the most popular artists in the world. Indeed, but this isn't the only time that they will make history in the US this year, right? That's right. The article mentions that Esper will also become the first K-pop group to perform at the Governor's Ball Music Festival. It will be held in New York City in June. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's all for our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Tune in to One Fine Day with Lena Park and join the K-pop diva for two fine hours every weekday. 
Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea24, host Kwon Jang-woo helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with global audiobook Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in!